0: because we're not. Right. Hey, we've been talking about heaven, and I don't know if you're sick of heaven yet, but I'm not. So, one more time, <laughs> into the breach we go. Uh, going to talk a little bit more about heaven today. Um, when we want to describe to other people an event or an experience, Uh, that's amazing. You know, one of those things that you, oh, it's the best. It's truly memorable. All of the, the conditions are just perfect. We have a phrase that we use for that, right? We call that heaven on earth, right? And that's where we're going today. Heaven on earth. So, because of where we are on the calendar as well, on the night of His arrest, in His final conversation with His disciples, Jesus spoke to them again about returning to His Father, again about returning to His Father, preparing a place for them, returning to take care of them, to be with them. He's speaking, um, telling them again about His death and, and His resurrection and His return, His second coming. John 14. This is a place, if you've got one of your own Bibles or you want to use your online Bible, um, you can use our screen Bible as well. It's big. But John 14, we're going to do a couple of things here. So, if you, if you want to find that, I'm giving you time to do that right now. We're going to start uh, John 14, starting at verse 2. My Father's house… Has many rooms. Now that's an NIV translation. We talked about translations a little bit last time. The New International Version. It's not the right version. It's just the version that I use more than anyone else. Okay. So in here we get in my father's house has many rooms, rooms. Okay, that's key word right there. That's the way it's translated here. That same verse, that word rooms is translated as mansions in the King James Version. So, King James would say, in my Father's house are many mansions. Still one house, although there's many mansions. And so, when we have our picture of the uh, streets of gold, pearly gates, mansions everywhere, that's where it comes from. But even in the King James, it doesn't say there will be many mansions. It says, in my Father's house, there are many mansions. It's the idea that it's one together. So, that's where mansions comes from. In my Father's house… My Father's house has many rooms. Um, If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? Three. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. So, in quick succession… What we have right there, we have Jesus prophesying or, you know, explaining His role uh, in preparing heaven for us, His death, His resurrection, His ascension, His return, and our being together with Him. Then Jesus adds, verse 4, He says, you know the way to the place where I am going. This verse confuses many people who come in reading it here. It confuses us when we hear it. And it confused His disciples at the time as well. And they're confused. You know, I think they're going to shake their head and look at each other going, uh, what's He talking about? But thankfully, we have a record of someone who wasn't afraid to ask the question we all kind of wanted to ask. And that's why I kind of like Thomas so much. He says what I'm thinking. He says what you might be thinking and what I'm sure that more of the disciples around that table were thinking at that time. Verse 5, Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. All right, you seem to think you've told us, but I'm not getting it. We don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? it's a bit strange because in Jesus' mind, He has been telling them frequently about what He's doing, but they just don't want to accept the way He's describing it. He's spoken to them frequently about the cross. So many times that scholars see a direct or an indirect allusion to the cross in every single chapter of John's gospel. So, when when Jesus says, you know the way, He's really saying, I've already told you. I told you plenty of times how I'm going to go about returning to the Father, and it's through humiliation, through shame, and death. Understandable why they don't want to see that. By surrendering everything and entrusting myself completely to the Father, I will also be glorified. This is the way. This is the path. This is the road trip that that Jesus says that He's continuing to go on and that we're going on as well. And like Jesus' first disciples, many Christians today are reluctant to accept this path. It does not seem enticing at all. For us, uh, we don't want this to be the way, even if Jesus said it many times. This is not the path that we desire to follow. And that worldly temptation for power, for control is so strong that we are drawn to Christian leaders with Christian messages which say that God wants us to have power and to never surrender it. It's an ongoing challenge for us. Regular, daily, to battle with following Jesus or following Corey Hart. Do you remember Corey Hart? 80s Canadian singer passionately told us that the way forward was to never surrender. That's why Dan sings. Um, Jesus calls us repeatedly, follow me, to behave like him, to be transformed into his likeness. And we seem chronically tempted to pursue the kingdom of heaven by employing the values of earth. After Jesus was arrested, brought before Pilate, the Roman governor, John 18, 36, Jesus said, my kingdom It's not of this world. If it were, my servants, they would, prevent, they would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders, but now my kingdom is from another place. We've heard this before. My kingdom is now and in another place. Jesus is declaring that His kingdom and those who belong to it do not operate like the kingdoms of this world. The way of heaven is not coercion. It is not violence. The way of heaven is not greed. The way of heaven is not fear. And its citizens do not seek self-preservation or power above all else. Special note here, a little side note. Ironically, that's what we seem to be most known for in the news, at least, more than anything else right now. We as a body of believers, Christians, not just us, but Christians, we are not known for our kindness. We're not known for our compassion. We're not known for our generosity. We're not known for our understanding and not particularly for our patience either. In short, we are not known for our love. We are known for yelling, for threatening, for condemning, for accusing, disparaging, criticizing, demanding, for being greedy. We get famous for being greedy. We're famous for being sexually immoral, for inciting fear, and for living in fear ourselves. And publicly, we'll demand our rights and ask to be protected from the world, that we are supposed to be influencing and loving towards Jesus. And that temptation to divorce the work of Christ from the way of Christ or to abandon the values of heaven to embrace these values of earth, it has done great, harm, incalculable harm throughout the church's history, and this temptation gains strength whenever we separate the scope of God's mission from the nature of God's mission. Remember, Christ is in the process right now of redeeming all things, and He is employing us, partnering with us in that work. A disciple of Jesus should be awestruck and even appropriately overwhelmed by the scale of this calling. And unfortunately, the world-changing scope of God's mission causes some to think that uh, accomplishing it will necessitate using the world's methods and values. How else could we do it? After all, what we have seen is that world-changing is what empires and armies and corporations do. So, maybe the church should copy their strategies also. And it's a terrible error that has led Christians into darkness and into evil throughout history. And it's not just history. We're still writing it. It continues to inflict great harm on congregations and communities still today. Gemin and Grogan uh, and Kyle Strobel, they wrote a book called The Way of the Dragon or The Way of the Lamb. And in it, they remind us that we can only pursue the mission of heaven using the methods of heaven. We must only fight with spiritual weapons and not the weapons of this world. And we don't like that. That always looks like the humble self-sacrifice of Jesus. So they write, we are called as His people to participate in Christ's triumph over the powers by submitting to the way of the cross. We are called to be a cruciform people, to live according to the cross-shaped way of Jesus. We are called to receive power in weakness, not power in our strength or in ourselves. Apostle Paul, he drives this home again, and in his first letter, at least the first letter that we have uh, of, sent to the, the church in the city of Corinth, the way that we fight indicates whether we are fighting for the empire or the kingdom. So, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, great verses. I love these verses. I come back to them all the time. First Corinthians chapter 10, starting at verse 3, for though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. For the weapons that we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. Five, we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Back to Thomas's question, John chapter 14, now at verse 5, Thomas says to him again, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Jesus, what's the way? How do we do that? Where is it? Where's the way? How do we follow that? What are we supposed to do? How do we fight with spiritual weapons? Because I don't know what that means. What do we need to do? So let, let us follow you. Show us the way, Jesus. Blaze the trail. How do we experience heaven here and now, but in a different way? Verse 6, Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father except through me. Seven, if you really know me, You will know My Father as well. From now on, you do know Him and have seen Him. Eight, Philip, again, speaking for all of us. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. Just just let us see the invisible God. That's all we want. Nine, Jesus answered, Don't you know Me, Philip? Even after I've been among you for such a long time? Anyone who has seen the Father has, anyone who's seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Verse 10, don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I I don't speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. This is the way. If you look, just a little bit ahead on your calendar, you see what's coming. It's not a secret. There is no surprise. The path we are on leads to the cross. Matthew chapter 16, verse 21. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to His disciples that He must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the chief priests and the elders and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Does not compute. Verse 22, Peter took him aside, began to rebuke him. Never, Lord. He said, this shall never happen to you. I don't like what you're talking about. I don't like the direction you're going. 23, Jesus turned And said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. 24 And then Jesus said to his disciples, Whoever wants to be my disciple, whoever wants to be my disciple, must take up, must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. That's the way. 25, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. We go, this is hard to put my head around. 26, what good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? 27, for the Son of Man is going to come in His Father's glory with His angels and then he will reward each person according to what they have done. After his resurrection, sneak preview, there's a resurrection. Jesus continues to appear to his disciples and he teaches them for a period of 40 days. We're told in the opening chapter of Acts, so Acts chapter 1, that he spoke to them about the kingdom of God and the disciples asked, when Will the kingdom of God be fully revealed? They wanted to know when heaven and earth would be reunited. When will God's rule be established so that everyone can see it? Tell us, they asked Jesus. Come on, you know, let us in. When will the present heaven and the present earth, when will they be transformed into the new heavens and the new earth? I want to put it in my calendar. I want, I want a reminder for that day. I want to be ready for that date. But, but Jesus doesn't answer the question that they wanted Him to answer it. Instead, He promised them the power to be His witnesses throughout the world. And let's be honest. This is true for the disciples then. It's true for us. It's true for the disciples right now. That's not the answer that we wanted. That's not how we would choose to move forward. But we've been called to follow. Acts chapter 1, starting at verse 7. He said to them, It's not for you to know the times or the dates the Father has set by His own authority. Eight. But... You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Verse 9 After he said this, he he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. Verse 10. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside him. Eleven. Men of Galilee, they said, Why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back. We'll come back. We'll come back in the same way you have seen him go. Into heaven. So remember, uh, cultural side note here: uh, ancient cultures use the same word to mean the sky, the heavens, and God's spiritual realm. So therefore, uh, when when Jesus was lifted into the sky and disappeared, it was understood that he was returning to God's presence. That's just the way the language stuff works. And the message of the angels, the two men in white, the message of the angels to the disciples was not someday you will also leave the earth and join Jesus in the heavens. But rather, Jesus will someday return from the heavens and be with you again on the earth. The angel's words are really important because they indicate where Jesus' followers are supposed to be focusing their hope. Our goal should not be to follow Jesus into the heavens but to see Him return from the heavens to reign upon the earth. And unfortunately, this is not the orientation of popular Christianity. We have a very heaven-centric mental map paraphrased by get me out of here. Today, even when Christians do speak of Jesus' return, it's often framed as a rescue mission in which Jesus is going to fly in in a helicopter, scoop His arm down and gather His people and, and, and take us off to heaven right before the earth is destroyed. But that idea is never mentioned by the angels. And its popularity, the way that we kind of know that's what we're supposed to think, reveals how our heaven-centric mental map has warped other doctrines of our faith, including Jesus' ascension and His promised return. What the angels spoke of in Acts 1 is depicted later. We get the picture of it. The video footage comes out. Revelation 21, vivid, symbolic imagery. And there we have the Apostle John. He records the vision that God gave him. Revelation chapter 21, verse 1. We've talked about this one before, but it keeps coming up because it's part of our essential way of thinking. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first, for, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. Two, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. Three, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and He will dwell with them. They will be His people, and God Himself will be with them and be their God. For He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. The current age ends and the age to come begins." This is the restoration of the kingdom the disciples had asked Jesus about. This is the reunification of heaven and earth. This is the transition between that current age and the age to come. The move from the present heaven, which is heaven now, but in another place, into the new heaven, which is heaven here, but at another time. And notice that rather than God's people ascending into the heavens... To be with Him, God descends from the heavens to be with His people on the earth, exactly as the angels promised. The climax of the biblical story does not show Jesus sitting on a big throne, ruling the entire cosmos from heaven. Instead, His throne is established upon a renewed and redeemed earth. And likewise, Christ's people are not whisked away to dwell in His presence in heaven. Instead, heaven descends to earth so that Jesus may be with us. And with with is such an important and central way to see and to understand our relationship to God. With. God's presence is a gift to us. He doesn't tolerate us okay? He desires to be near us. He loves us and has decided to include us, to partner with us, to include us in that great plan of redemption. Sometimes as Christians, we like to use language. Maybe you've heard a phrase like this before, says, God used me to make a difference in the world. Oh, you should watch this week for God to use you even in your daily life. And while it might be accurate, you know, to a degree, It provides an incomplete picture and possibly a bad taste in the back of your mouth. None of us wants to be used by our friends. None of us wants to be used by our boss. It diminishes our personhood when that happens. We're not saying that God picked us up like a tube of toothpaste and carelessly squeezed us out all over the spiritual cavities that exist. He partners with us bringing us to full life by coaching us to be our best. He allows us to use our God-given gifts and talents, and He provides opportunity where we can receive 10, 20, 100 times return on the generous investments of our time, our treasures, and our talents. He allows opportunities for us to experience growth and development of our personhood, through Him is really the only time that we will ever stretch out into the fullest expression of our personalities to be all that we were designed and created to be. We partner with God. God partners with us. This is the way. Rather than a heaven-centric vision of the future, what the New Testament describes is a Jesus-centric, Christo-centric vision of the future here on earth. Heaven is here and now, but in another way. This is the way. And that's what Jesus' followers were known as before they were ever named Christians in the city of Antioch. They were followers of the way. The way uh, was shaped deeply around Jesus' command that He gave to His disciples on that night of the Last Supper. John 13, 34. a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you the way that I have loved you, so you must love one another. 35, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. What are we known for? The path that we are on follows Jesus. That's the direction we're supposed to go. We take time every month to have, well, what we call checkpoint. Checkpoint acknowledges the fact that we're on, well, we call it a road trip, an earnest pursuit of Jesus. But when you are on the road trip for a while, it's important to stop every once in a while to make sure you're going where you thought you were going. And so we have a checkpoint service where we kind of stop the other stuff that we were doing to say, before we we get distracted too much, let's come back to our primary focus. Let's come back to Jesus. So at checkpoint, we choose to remember what God has done for us in the ancient past and the recent past and our personal past. How has God been faithful? Where have we seen Him at work? We choose to reevaluate where we are right now. I don't know how your month went, but it is entirely possible that it was filled with distraction. For some of us, I know there's been great disappointment that happened in this last month. Thankfully, there are also stories where amazing, great things happened in the last month. It is easy to be caught up in whatever the rage is right now. And by rage, I mean the outrage. Whatever we're upset about today, and you'll notice that our calendar is flipping faster and faster, the next outrage comes more and more quickly. And we're caught up with, yes, I'm upset about that. Or I'm upset about the reason that they're upset about that. And we're upset. And we allow ourselves to become upset. we got to tell somebody else that we're upset. I'm outraged. And in doing that, we lose our focus. We got distracted. This has nothing to do with condemnation. This has everything to do with refocus. We remember God's faithfulness in the past. We reevaluate where we are today. Is this really where I want to be? Am I pursuing the life that I really want to be living? Am I in relationship with Jesus in the way that I really want that to be? Am I following Him in the way that He has called me to follow Him? We reevaluate. And then the gift of today, the blessing of today is to refocus before we leave. If you have become distracted, I understand it. I get distracted very much also. The key is to not stay distracted, but to refocus. To let your eyes go up once again. To put your eyes on Jesus. To let Him be the author and the finisher of your faith. The one that you depend on, the one that you trust with, all of the other things, all of the other decisions that you have to make. Jesus first, everything else after. You have the privilege to live this out individually, but you have the greater privilege of being able to live this out in community, to look at the people around you and say, help me go in this direction because I do find it hard. I do get distracted. I do get upset. I do get into feeling like the weapons of this world make more sense. If I could just make everybody do what Jesus wants, wouldn't that be better? but the violence of that action is in direct opposition to the way of Christ. It is life lived out in trust repeatedly, and the trust is there because it seems like how could this possibly work? If I just did this, we could fix it. It's not up to you to fix. It's up to you to follow and to be obedient and to trust that God will work in us He would work through us, and that hope would be found for those around us and for us ourselves. We remember, we reevaluate, and we refocus. And we do that using communion. So, we've been talking about a whole bunch of conversations that happened at this same supper. Must have been a very busy, talky supper. We go to Luke now to continue that talkiness. Luke chapter 22. Verse 14, when the hour came, Jesus and His apostles reclined at the table. They reclined there because they're sitting on the floor. They're not sitting on chairs. 15, and when He said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. 16, for I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. 17, 17. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this, divide it among you. 18. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. 19. And he took bread and he gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them saying, This is my body given for you. Do this. Do this in remembrance of me. Don't forget. 20. In the same way after the supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is poured out for you. The beautiful part of the way he does this is uh, uh, one being broken to many. We have this the experience is for you to share it. We eat from the same source. We drink from the same source. It's a together kind of thing. In North America, we've done a lot to work on saying it's, it's just personal. It's just about you. You have a personal relationship with God. True, but incomplete. We have a personal relationship with God that is lived out in community. We need each other. We discern together in community. We help each other through community. We bond to each other so that we don't get left behind. We need the help of each other in different seasons. Communion, the coming together, is so much of what this is about that we symbolize it. We do these things that have symbols that remind us that our life comes from Jesus and that life is shared amongst us. Not just for you. For anyone who chooses to come. So, if it is your desire to commune with God, to be partnering with Him in this mission, if He is transforming your life, if the way that you live is being adjusted because of Jesus speaking into your life, you've, you've decided that you will follow Him, that you will put your trust in Him. You will ask Him to be your Savior. If that is what you desire, then we would love to help you take another step. One more step on that road trip in earnest pursuit of Jesus by taking communion with us. We have it at the back. When you are ready, we'll ask you to come down this aisle, up this aisle. You can pick it up from the back. As always, I would encourage you, if you came with someone, take communion with them. It's still personal, but communal is of benefit to us. And the reason that most of you right now are saying, I don't want to do that, is because it's hard. I get that, but it's of benefit. Share together. Body of Christ broken for you. Blood of Christ shed for you. You have the capacity to remind each other to live in the hope. It's not just something that I am given. It's something that you as a Christ-following person can give to someone else. You have God's divine authority to bless someone. Don't be stingy in your blessings. Give as God has given to you. Share this time. Father God, thank You for the way that You have given us hope, given us life, offered us transformation, given us forgiveness, given us healing. Help us to walk into the gifts that You have already given, that we might appropriate them well for ourselves. So many times we leave gifts unwrapped. You said it was ours, and and we're kind of interested, but we don't know exactly what to do. We're like Thomas saying... We don't know the way. You've showed us. You are the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus. It is in pursuit of you that I walk down this path to say again, I want more of you in my life. I want to submit myself, and I want to put my trust on you. I don't know how it all works out, but I'm trusting that you will be beside me as I go, and I pray this for my friends that are here or even at home watching, that this is the choice, this is the set of decisions that are being made in this moment. In earnest pursuit of you, Jesus, we come now. Thank you for opening the way, for being the way and the life. In Jesus' name, amen. When you are ready, please come. Don't feel an obligation.